Dave Evans is a lecturer in the product design program at Stanford, management consultant, co-founder of the iconic gaming company, Electronic Arts. Having participated in forming the cultures at Apple and EA, Dave decided that his best work was really in helping organizations build creative environments where people could do great work and really love doing it. And maybe along the way, answer the question, what should I do with my life? And helping people get traction on that question finally took Dave to Cal and Stanford, and it continues to be his life work. Now, Bill Burnett, who became his collaborator, is the executive director of the design program at Stanford. He got his BS and MS in product design at Stanford. He has worked for a wide variety of projects, ranging from award-winning Apple PowerBooks to the original Hasbro Star Wars action figures. And together, they took all their wisdom about doing great work, being lit up, and living a better life, and wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Designing Your Life. And more recently, the follow-up, Designing Your Work Life. And, and they also continue to train coaches and run workshops and individuals and work with organizations really exploring this question. So I had the chance to sit down with Dave and Bill earlier this year. In fact, it was late February. I was actually in California and we did a live event at Stanford University where we recorded a conversation before a crowd, a live podcast gathering. And it was amazing. And the conversation was super powerful. And as happened within a matter of days, so many things started getting shut down. Uh, everything changed dramatically. And as we had done with a handful of conversations that we recorded early, we held on to this conversation and thought to ourselves, well, maybe it's more appropriate for when things start to change, when things shift. And then we held on to it and held on to it. And then we found ourselves now saying, you know what? Um, we are in a place where we're in a long-term experience here. And what Dave and Bill have shared in this conversation and how it relates to what so many people are now finding themselves in, an exploration of how they want to really live their working lives and their lives, devote their energy and be of service is so relevant to this particular moment. So we wanted to actually finally share this conversation with you. So what you hear was actually taped live in front of an audience at Stanford University. So you'll hear the sound is a little bit different. You may hear some background noise and some audience and the occasional uh, laughter at their jokes and um, pity laughter at my occasional corny dad jokes. I'm so excited to share their incredible ideas and wisdom with you now. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's give a little bit of context just to who you are and how you came to work together because you come from sort of like different walks of life and somehow ended up originally teaching this course together and trying to figure out, okay, what is this thing called design thinking and why is it being used in this one domain but we're not really applying this process, this way of thinking, to actually creating a better life. So how does the marriage first happen here? I'll do the origin and yeah. throw it to you in spring of 2007. So um, going all the way back to when I was a Stanford sophomore, you know, here 75,000 years ago when there were pterodactyls on the White Plaza, and struggling with the question, what do I do with my life? I found, you know, most of the grown-ups who were supposed to be helpful, not helpful at all. And I found it really difficult to figure my own life out. Then I get into my career, and I'm at Apple in the early days, and find myself on the first corporate culture committee with Steve in 1980, because we're worried about what makes Apple won't be Apple anymore someday. And, I, and over the subsequent 30 years, notice everybody's got this question, particularly in the workplace, about I want to do meaningful work, I want it to work for you, I want it to work for me, I want this to be generative. Maybe they don't use that language, but that's what they were looking for and struggling with it. So everybody's got this question. Fast forward many more years later, I'm having a coffee with a guy named Randy over at Berkeley, and he says, gosh, Dave, you should teach a class on this. And I said, well, minor problems, I'm not on the faculty, I don't have a PhD, I don't have any contacts there. And he says, I can solve everything but the lousy commute. I said, deal. So I taught a course experimentally um, one student said, are you teaching in the spring? Because my roommate wants to take it. And I said, sure. And I made a deal with the universe. If the kids show up, I'll show up. So 14 semesters later, um, I'm teaching this class at Berkeley called Finding Your Vocation. And then Hasso Plattner and David Kelly get together and invent this thing called the D-School, or decide to invent the D-School, which is where we are now. And in order to focus on that, David Kelly asked this guy, Bill Burnett, to run the design program. And so in 2007, I heard Bill was coming here to run the design program. And I said, hey. Bill gets this kind of stuff. He cares about students, and Stanford's a lot less terrible drive for me. Let's have lunch. And so we had lunch in 2007 in the spring, which I thought was the first of 10 lunches over a year, talking about this ambiguous idea of helping students find their way. And about a minute and a half, Bill goes, that's a great idea. It's a huge problem. We should totally fix it. Design thinking is the way to really solve this thing. So take all that stuff you're doing and flip it into design. Give me a proposal. We'll teach it. You know, we'll prototype it this summer. We'll teach it this fall. Let's go. I got I to gotta run. So it was a two-minute meeting. And we're, you know, I'll get you an appointment. We got to go. So um, one of the few times that Bill talks faster than I do. And, and so then you know, we start that spring thinking of ideas and that fall teaching design students, which eventually meant teaching all the students but in particular, the design thing really did work. Now, why, why was that, Bill? Why did design work? 
Well, design is inherently human-centered the way we teach it. And, you know, both of you and I have been working with students for a long time. I started, I finished my master's in 82. I started teaching here part-time in 83. I've been doing this for like 36 years or something. Uh, and in office hour after office hour after office hour, really smart, capable students are right. going, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to launch. Is work going to suck as much as everybody tells me it sucks? Um, how will I find something that I want or I like or might even be meaningful? People keep asking me stupid questions like, what's my passion? And I don't know. So There's nothing am, I, wrong with am you. I broken? Yeah, right. What's wrong with me, professor? And it's like, nothing wrong with you. Uh, and then Dave had this experience over at Berkeley. And, you know, basically the class happened because he wanted a shorter commute and I wanted to, like, free up my office hour time. But no, it's, it's, a real, it's a really big problem. I mean, you look around the, you know, if you look at the data around the world, 60, uh, United States, 68% of the people say, I'm disengaged from, or highly disengaged from my job. I hate my job. 85% worldwide, people hate their jobs, right? Mm. So the students, you know, we started with students, and then pretty soon after we had kind of gone all over the university, and by the way, now we, and we give the class to any university that wants it, we're now being taught at 115-some universities, courtesy of that wonderful woman over there, Gabrielle. Um, who runs our studios, um, everybody's got the same question. Like, will life be meaningful? Will this be interesting? What's work? How does work fit into this big thing called life? And it's essentially a, a human problem because we're trying to, what designers do is make new things that have never happened in the world. You know, hey, this is an iPhone. It's never been happened before. How do you do it? Well, you build lots and lots of prototypes and you figure it out because you can't get any data about the future. So you, when you want to do something in the future that's brand new, you need a process. Design thinking is that process. It works over and over again. If you apply it to your life, well, what are you trying to do? Something new in the world, your future, right? It's, you've, never, you've never been there before. You don't know what it's going to be like. You probably are a little anxious or you're at a point of change. So we started working with 30 and 40-somethings who are kind of, right. you know, I have this career thing, but it's not exactly what I, didn't really work out the way I thought, or it's okay, but I'd like to go faster. So everybody's got this problem. How do I invent the future? Well, design, thinking, and design is a way of inventing your future. You know, and we, I tell the students, you have one of two choices. Whether that student's 20 and launching, or 30 and bored, or 50 and thinking about their encore career, you got, only got two choices. The future's coming. You don't get to choose that. You get the default future. Stuff happens and you react to it. Or... You design it. You put your intention in the world, and you try to make the world do the things that you are interested in. And you know that thing like when you buy a red car, and then all of a sudden you see, everybody's got a red car. Look at all these red cars. It's amazing. I have a red car. Yeah. It's, the red cars are already there. It's just you notice them because you started thinking about red cars, like the one you own. Well, when you start noticing things about the future, like, I wonder if I could do this, or I wonder if I could do that. When you get curious, right. and you start talking to people and trying stuff, You'll notice that all those opportunities were there anyway, you just weren't paying attention. So this design thinking thing is the way of inventing this future and paying attention to who you are and what the world needs from you. You mentioned a hundred something other colleges and universities are now also teaching this curriculum. Yeah. So it's almost like you're, you team up, you teach this. You know, the seeds of day is worth and the design thinking, then you bring it here and you continue yep. to develop for close to another decade. Right. That goes out into the world and then September-ish, 2016, it's right. time to actually distill this into a book. Right. Right, Designing Your Life. That goes out into the world. I'm imagining that that actually was the catalyst for all these other schools to start saying, like raising their eyebrows and saying... Yeah, so, the phone really started to right. ring. So yeah. to me, it's sort of like, it, it's like the Roger Bannister moment of design thinking meets like <laughs> creating your life because yeah. you have this 
you know, one person shows you can run a four-minute mile, and then in the years after, all these yeah. people are breaking right. it. Right. And that becomes this one thing where it's like, oh, there's this intelligent process right. that we can design to this existential question that everybody suffers and never has an answer to. Right. And now these guys have come up with a way to sort of map it out, which is linear, simple, straightforward, progressive. Yeah. Dave and I had been teaching about six, seven years before we got to this idea of writing a book, and um, it took a while to convince Dave to write a book because he doesn't like to write. And, we were, and partially, we were also worried that we weren't sure that books could do what we do in a classroom. In a classroom, right, right, right. you know, you've got the students there. You can yeah. see how they're reacting. It's ten weeks. We get a we get a, a real small group of the training facilitator, group. very personal. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we were really cautious that the book would one be useful, wouldn't be just some silly self-help book that makes you do a lot of stuff that doesn't work, and then you feel bad. All of our stuff is pretty research-based, either positive psychology or design right. research. So. So we try to craft it in a way that would be useful and accessible, and you could read it in any order so that, you know, however, whatever, there's an old expression, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. So when the student is ready, the book will arrive. If the book is the right book for you, it'll speak to you somehow. And it took mm -hmm. off, and we were quite surprised. Yeah. Uh, we still have trouble thinking about ourselves as authors, because we think of ourselves as product guys. So right. we shipped a product, and then everybody calls us authors. That's weird. Um, and now we have a new product. It was really, at that point, yeah, the, 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 lots of other universities found out about it. Uh, this wonderful community of people called life coaches and, and executive coaches or career coaches all showed up on our doorstep and said, this is amazing, can we use this stuff? So we now have a certification program for coaches. And it's turned out to be kind of a movement. You know, people really like thinking of themselves as a designer. I think that's one hook. And, and imagining themselves as creating, being creative in, their, in the uh, agent, agency of their own lives. And, and that word agency is the thing that kept, like, pops up also because right. it is that switch from reactive <coughs> to a sense of power and control agency right. where it's like, okay, I don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be yet, but I have a process where I'm not just showing up and reacting what other think is the, you know, people think is the appropriate path for me. I'm actually pushing this forward. And I kind of know where to go with this, even though I don't know where it's going to end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge shift in psychology for so many people. Yeah. So that goes out into the world. It starts as sort of like generates a ton of interest. Yep. Um, fast forward, we're sitting here now on a stage in Stanford D School. It's 2020. And you have an, another book out. So for two product guys who are like struggle with the idea author, <laughs> now book two, right? Most people yep. write their first book and they're like, I'm so glad that was done never again. Um, and you're here, so for you to, and you both have so much going on individually in your lives, you know, as well as collectively, what happens in the intervening years? What happens between the end of 2016 and now that makes you say, we're still not quite done creating some tool that needs to go out and, and solve some problem? Well, the, um, I mean, literally the phone rings off the hook. I mean, you know, we, we hit the road, we, we stand in front of rooms like this, you know, with anywhere from 25 to 2,500 people, anywhere from, you know, the 18-minute TED Talk to the eight-hour intensive workshop, over and over again, hundreds, literally hundreds of times. And uh, from the now 60-odd thousand people in our, you know, digital community uh, who have signed up to be in the conversation with us, uh, as well as the 600,000 book readers, a lot of the questions are about, you know, okay, I may not want to massively redesign my life, but I'd like to be a little better right where I am. How about this? How about that? That question is coming in like crazy. The universities are lining up like crazy, asking for help. So clearly, the question has power. It's not like we have the coolest book on the planet. We just have a good book that answers a question that's not getting very good food. You know, so finally, you know, high caloric, non-fattening food for a really important question has arrived. 
And then the publisher said, look, this is not a book, it's a movement. We think there are a couple of things you guys could do. Let us know what you think the possibilities of where we could go from here are. We had an ideation session about that. And then they came back and said, we really want to talk about the work thing. And that's mostly what we were hearing from the world as well. And then I said, so we sat in that room right there. I said, okay, I guess we have to design the workbook, the book about work. And I went, Bill, we're screwed. Because <laughs> we haven't taught this for 10 years. We haven't thought this thing. We, we, we imagined what we should do a book on work. We don't know what the heck the book is. We've, we're screwed. And 20 minutes later, we designed it. It fell right out because what we forgot was, well, between us, we've worked for like 75 years and had lots of consulting clients and done all this executive coaching and all this you know, corporate culture formation work and organizational development work. And the first question was, where do people get stuck at work? Bang. We used to call that a bug list in the early design days. So we had a bug list in no time. Do we have design solutions to that? Actually, we do. About 19 out of 20 of those we know how to address. And then we just wrote it down. Yeah. And then a year later, we finished writing it down. <laughs> right. It's like 20 minutes to map the whole yeah. thing out. Yeah. And then a year down. And then a year, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, now, I'm curious, what are the bugs, right? Because, so Bill, you referenced this earlier. You know, like 68% of the people that's engaged and 85% of the people hate their work. And talk to me a, a bit more about the state of work today. Because it seems ah. like it's almost more bugs than sort of like good. Well, there's a couple, I mean, everybody, everybody's freaking out right now about the future of work. You know, AI's coming, the robots are coming, no one will have a job, and it'll all It's all be, gig economy. It's all going to be, you're going to be, yeah, you're all going to be Uber drivers, maybe, if you're lucky, uh, except they're going to go out of business, so that won't work. Um, and, you know, so, so I got excited about that, dug into that, and, and the, the, the answer is none of that's going to happen. It's not true. Uh, by the way, this isn't a new question. I pulled a paper from an economist in 1919 who predicted that by the year 2000, machines would be doing all the work. He thought they were steam engines, of course. So, you know, one, I think, I think in the future of work, being a creative, uh, working on social and emotional intelligence, working on creativity, working on collaboration and people, things together will never be automated, and that will be the most high-value work. And so... You should probably learn to design your life anyway, just to be resilient in the future, because you'll, you'll need lots of designs to, to you know, sort of surf the changes. But the changes have already, you know, they're, they're already happening. I mean, you know, I remember the first spreadsheet. Spreadsheet is a piece of automation. Before spreadsheets, if you had a picture of an office, it would be full of people entering things into what was called a ledger so that people could calculate your taxes. Now we use spreadsheets. When I got out of school, I had a draftsman draw my drawings. Now I just draw stuff on the screen and print it on, the, on a 3D printer while I go to get coffee. And everybody still has a job. So right. one, we want to address that. I think, you know, the, on the future of work, I mean, the future of work is mostly talking about like the way future of work, and let's do a sci-fi conversation becoming reality. The thing we think is more important is the future of the worker, and the future of the worker is now. So the future worker, like you guys, you know, um, is living in reality today. And what's happening finally, it's been brewing for, frankly, 15, 20 years, is a fundamental shift in organizational shape, whether that organization is a donut shop or IBM, which is it went from this to this. So organizations are flat. Bosses have not six direct reports, but 20, or 30 vendors who are gig employees remotely all over the world. And, uh, and so you, a career used to be go up. There is no up anymore. You get to level three and there's no more up. So a whole bunch of people are really frustrated. There's nowhere up to go because that's still the default. An incredibly antiquated idea is where do I go next? I go up. There is no up. It's a dumb idea. Uh, so don't waste your time on it. You've got to go laterally. You've got to go other. You've got to go different. And now, finally, 
employers are beginning to realize that and are no longer saying, we're going to help you with professional development, we're going to help you with empowering you to do your own agency definition of your own future, even here at this organization, in the bigger companies and even in the smaller ones. So what that says is, <laughs> if I don't want to completely quit and start over again, which is really painful, uh, and not necessary much of the time, you don't resign, redesign. So probably one of the big ideas in the book is in the, in the face of that, wait a minute, I'm now in charge, and even my boss thinks I'm in charge and says, well, how can I help you, you know, do whatever it is you want to do here? Now, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You have to figure it out. Right. So now you are the agent of your own future in a more powerful way than ever before, so you need a toolkit. And so the, one of the core things is how do you redesign your work in place and we actually have four different strategies for that. Right, and, and I want to actually dive into that because this is one, it seems to be one of the central things and is also completely contrary to what you hear very often as sort of the pop psychology self-help world, which is <laughs> if you don't like your thing, just blow it up. If somebody doesn't support you, jettison them from your life. You're like, this is, just get it all done with, which, you know, if you're 21 years old, maybe fine. But if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you have a family, you have responsibilities, you've built things and, and structure around your life, the idea of disrupting on that level is excruciating. And even when people get to a point where they think, I'm ready to blow it all up, yep. I still think we end up being, and I'm raising my hand here also, yep. because I've blown it up a number of times, we end up being semi-delusional because <laughs> we, we overestimate the joy that we think we'll feel the day after we make this change, and we profoundly underestimate the pain <laughs> yes. that this disruption is going to bring us. Yeah. So, so tell me more about like, the, the, the four things. So the four, <laughs> the four strategies are uh, reframe and re-enlist, uh, remodel, relocate, and reinvent. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, 
wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness that equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. The first one, which is, you know, reframe and re-engage, is literally bring a new you to the same job with no structural changes whatsoever, and you can actually transform your situation, which is not sort of some patronizing, you know, make lemonade out of lemons. It's literally reframing what your experience is. The second one means I can actually change my job description in my current job nine times out of ten, even without my boss's permission, and do so successfully, because I don't need other permission or even or other resources to invent this new job. I can relocate over to another kind of a job in the same organization pretty directly, and then reinvent as I probably have to go get some retraining, some heavy lifting might be involved, you know, so some, they get harder as you go along. But there's still four ways to get there from here. Um, and the first one, which really is a mindset change, um, can be absolutely huge. We've got a couple of examples in the book. The classic one is, I mean, I can't afford to quit this job. You know, a story in the, in the book about a guy who suddenly, real, first day on the job, realizes, oh, they lied completely to me. This is a horrible job. My boss is an idiot. It's a nightmare. That's and never happened to anybody. Literally. Else, right, right, right. And it's Jekyll and Hyde, you know, <laughs> and I can't, I can't, my resume can't afford me to quit. I've got to sit here for at least a year, year or two. So I just, you know, literally eat toxic waste all day, every day, or <laughs> invent this new thing. And the reframe was, okay, I can't make what's awful better but I can find what is working here, and it's all about learning. So I'm going to get really efficient, because the work itself is boring, so I'm going to get really good at doing it in as little time as possible. I'm going to grow in my efficiency, and I'm going to learn all, by having been so efficient, I'm going to carve up a day, an hour a day or you know, half a day a week to go learn stuff from this great big organization that does things I don't know a lot about that I might be able to use someday. So I'm going to get a little MBA on the side for free when they're not looking. And that's a complete reframe. Abandon, I accept the fact that the job I thought I was going to get doesn't actually even exist. They, they literally lied to me. So let that go, and that frees me to do this other thing. Is it a consolation prize? Sure, but it beats the heck out of waking up and repaying the pain bill. One thing we see people do all the time is, go, you know, do, do you know what my boss did again today? I bet the same thing he did last week. You know, yes, he did. And you're so surprised for the 467th time. Yeah. Do you really want to pay your taxes like 
the 15th of every month, not just April? I mean, why would you do that? So we're trying to free people from that. And the first, the first strategy is really deep acceptance and then the reframe. And it's really yeah. frank. And just change your why. Why am I coming to work? I thought it was about this job. Turns out they lied to me. Right. We have another example of a guy who's got to have a job. You know, he had a cool job, then the company got bought. And then they said, nothing's going to change. And of course, everything changes when your company gets bought, and now he doesn't like it anymore. Right. But he's got great health insurance and a sick kid. So you change your why. I'm coming to work for my kid. Yeah. This, isn't about, this isn't about me anymore. It's not about my career anymore. As, yeah. soon, as, you, as soon as you accept the right. reframe, you are free from the constraint of, it's not my fault, they changed the rules. Yeah, and, and it also, it, it's this repeated idea of taking back the idea that, like, okay, so I'm no longer in a victim stance, in a reactive stance. Right. Like, how do I be the one who's actually, like, has this sense of agency, of control? I mean, it's interesting you brought up the idea, like, of the why, the reframe around purpose. That read some research about two, three years ago that looked at suffering. Right. Um, and that actually showed that when you can reframe suffering as in the name of something that gives you a bigger sense of purpose, in right. this context, they were looking at supporting people who are in your family who are in need. Mm -hmm. right. So you're doing something yeah. to, to get money that you hate. Right. But somewhere deep down, you tell yourself the story, I'm doing it because I have a mother, a father, an aunt, whatever right. it is, right. who's right. maybe somewhere, they're right. suffering deeply, they can't take care of themselves, but I have this ability to do that and provide for them. That it doesn't make it completely okay, but it changes the quality of the day-to-day -day work that you're doing enough where you're okay being there, at least for a window of time. And Adam Grant did the same thing, right? He right. took people in a call center, notoriously tough job at a university, like raising money, and he just introduces a couple of students that have gotten scholarships through the efforts of the call center who never would have been able to go to college. And all of a sudden, it profoundly changes the experience of the people in the call center from something yeah. that they really don't want to do to something, well, now they're on, they're on a mission. They're part of a movement. They're making a real difference. You know, there's a couple of things. Um, all the research, Dan Gilbert at Harvard, all the research on happiness, it's not about getting what you want. It's about fully engaging and, and wanting what you get. And you can have intention about what you get, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't get everything perfectly. I, you know, by all accounts, Mother Teresa was a depressed person and deeply unhappy most of the time, but she had a really big why. I'm working with the, the, the most the lowest of the low people here, and I'm, I'm giving them sanctuary, I'm giving them, I'm giving them hope and a place to live until they, until they die. So, I mean, it's not, the other thing, we, we fall into these silly ideas, like, who said work was about feeding my soul? When did that idea pop up? Mostly in the last 20 years. My grandfather came from Germany in 1933 because this didn't think this Hitler guy was going to turn out so well, worked his buns off to get the rest of his family out of Germany, and took any job he could get just to keep a roof over their head. His why was, we're here, we're safe, we're good. Now, sent his daughter to, you know, and sons to college, and they sent their sons to Stanford, and my daughter's now doing a PhD in immunology at UCSF, so it's the immigrant story, but you don't, the job was not where he was getting his, his big wife from. He had a wonderful community, they had a church, you know, people, people got together, he had, he had the, the, the love of people is where you get, you know, kind of happiness from, not from jobs. So it's cool if your job provides some of that, but that's not, that's a, that's a, Real dysfunctional belief that you got to examine. Yeah, can I jump on the purpose? Yeah. Because yeah. I actually just did a talk down at Cal State San Luis Obispo to a thousand students on the issue of what's my purpose, you know, and I said, well, wrong question. 
I mean, we almost always say it's the wrong question. Okay. The designers love to say that. One of the ideas in the book is good enough for now. The dysfunctional beliefs is this isn't good enough. You know, I deserve better. You know, and, and, but I can't find it, so my life's screwed. So, the, you know, and the reframe is, well, maybe, no, it's not good enough at the moment, but if we made it a little bit better, could it be good enough for now? And we really want that idea to be understood properly. We're a little worried. People kind of go, oh, it'll be fine, and we and we're sound patronizing. We don't mean to be patronizing. But on this purpose question, I was telling you know, a thousand students, no, don't try to answer the question, what's my purpose? Because like, what's my passion, or is this it? It's one of the many questions that culture currently frames inadvertently, exclusively. Like, are you, like the Good Life Project, John, are you really sure that's it? Is this really it? Or could it, is it, could it, is it maybe something else? And we don't think there is an it. There's not a perfect you. There's not a one best you. There's not a perfect career. There are lots of good yous, and there are lots of good ways to go. So you're going to pick one, and you'll never know. There's, we're bigger than life. Uh, we're bigger than a lifetime, I should say. So of course there's more than one right answer. There's lots of right answers, and we just live our way into it. So I think most people suspect I haven't really found my one true, per the one reason I was put on the earth, you know, is, now some of you may feel that way, but, but that's rare, probably because there's a couple of good ways you could spend your life on earth. So my counsel to people is don't try to get done finding your purpose and then just commit yourself to it, but learn how to live purposefully into the moment that life is presently offering you Pay attention, as Bill was saying earlier, grow your way forward, something else will develop. And if I start, I'm trying to live purposefully, right, which is a way of being, not a destination with an outcome, then my ability to say, well, why am I doing this? I wake up at three in the morning, I walk in the bathroom, I flip on the light, and the guy's looking back at me in the mirror going, why are you doing this? You know, I have clients who, they have the three in the morning bathroom conversation. You know, and you want to have a good answer for that guy in the mirror that's yelling at you at three in the morning. He's like, why are we doing That guy's well, a little he, crazy. Here's, yeah. here's why we made this decision, and here's what we're doing now, and it's not perfect, but it really is good enough for the moment, and here's what we're hoping for, and go back to bed, you're going to be fine. You want to help people find that kind of a way to live. And you mentioned agency. The, you know, I've been a designer ever since I, I came to Stanford. Well, I was a physics major for a while, but that didn't work out. Then I became a designer. You know, designers learn that you never pick your first idea, you brainstorm lots of ideas. I have, you know, for in the 30, 40 some years of design and been on, you know, three startup teams and Apple teams and other teams. I have literally thrown away hundreds of thousands of good ideas and picked a few hundred even better ideas. So the, throwing away ideas or the notion that there's lots of good me's and it, it's, just, it's just the way, you know, my, my brain works. And what we're trying to get people to realize is it isn't, there is no one singular best you. There's lots of good yous. There's no perfect job. Right. The job you've got could be made better. Mm -hmm. And you are the agent in this change, not, not, not the world. Most of the things that we, that we right. talk about for, for changing your job in place, you really don't, you don't even need your boss's permission. Although if you go frame it correctly and you tell a good story, your boss is going to go, oh, you mean you want to be more efficient and do this job better, faster? And you, for free. And to, in order to do that, you need to make these three changes. Sounds good to me. Let's go. There's an old, an old saying, people don't quit jobs, they quit bosses. And yet, the time, number of times I've, I've asked this question to my student, so you quit, right? Yeah, I quit. Why? Well, my boss was a jerk. Okay. Did you ever talk to him or her? Like, why are you a jerk? Did you ever do that? No. Why would I do that? Because that's the data you need to make a good decision. And nobody does it. Yeah, I think it's also, it's this idea that um, we are in this perpetual and iterative process. Yes, right. 
you know, that, that, that life. the only there there is here now, and we just right. keep taking the next step. Right. And, and we may figure out some things along the way that are great and, and take us to a place where we feel alive for a season. Sure. Right? But we are, like, we may wake up the next day, uh, you know, day, a season plus a day, and be like, right. huh, okay, so let's, you know, like, that's not it. I mean, it's also interesting, the notion of finding a sense of meaning and purpose from work. As, as, as you said, Dave, you know, like, it, it's great when you can make it happen. Yep. Um, yes, and also, that is not the only place. We tend to focus only on the domain of work as, like, that is a place I must derive my purpose or sense right. of purpose, sense of meaning in my life. And when you can, that's awesome. And sometimes you can do the reframes and reimagining and change the way you're doing it so that you can derive much more. And at the same time, there's a whole lot of life outside of that will still contribute to the totality of the experience of meaning and purpose right. when you wake up every single day and live yeah. that life. And we exclude that. But I mean, I mean, Bill, one of the things that you said, you know, you sort of gave the example of we're in this generation now where it seems like everybody's looking to work to provide this sense right. of purpose right. and not everything outside of that. There's another shift that's happened, which is you know, we are beasts that have to belong. Right. right? It's, it's wired into us. We have a physiological, a psychological need to belong. And the places that we used to look for that sense of belonging right. are, are going away really quick. Right. Right? So I wonder if part of what's happening is, and that sense of belonging where it also often gives us a sense of purpose or opportunities to do things that give sure. us a sense of purpose. So I wonder if that phenomenon is focusing us even more on having to have this thing happen in the domain of work. You know, it's possible. It's an interesting, an interesting hypothesis. Um, you know, we, we quote the, the longest running study of human development, the grand study at Harvard, starting the class of Harvard 38, I think. They've been studying this group of people for 80 some years. And the only thing that correlates to living longer, living healthier, and, and reporting your life as meaningful is relationships. Right. George Valiant, the last um, First psychologist on the, on, the, on the study has said, you want the whole $20 million, 80 years, something, one thing, it's all about love, full stop. So we, we do seek relationships. We have an intrinsic need to be related. One of the things we talk about in the, in the book is Edward Dietschy and the guys doing social determination theory. It's like, we need to be related, we need to have um, competence, we need to get better at stuff, and we have an inherent sort of need to be curious and, and autonomous in, in our lives. And if you actually reward us for those things, our performance goes down because you can't make an ex intrinsic thing extrinsically rewarded. So yeah, I think work is a place to find that. But I also see, you know, I think we're also trying to rebuild other things in our culture, uh, spiritual traditions, churches, and things right. like that. People just getting together in meetups and things. Uh, you know, the, the best possible version of social media is about connection. It doesn't play out that way in, in a positive all the time. So I think, um, I think work can be that place, but I think you're still, if you want community nowadays, you kind of have to build it yourself or at least catalyze it yourself because it isn't as available as it used to be. Yeah. And get clear what it looks like. So you brought up the meaning question, and one of the, um, the classic dysfunctional beliefs is, gosh, you know, um, you know, it's money or meaning, which way to go? I mean, students ask us this all the time. You know, I mean, I'm really drawn to go do the save the world thing, but, I, but I'm pretty good at the econ thing, and I think I want to go make some money on Wall Street, and I'm really torn. I can't have them both, you know. Um, and we go, look, that's another false dichotomy. Your brain loves dichotomies and turns them into teeter-totters, as binary truths, like, you know, meaning goes up, money goes down, money goes up, meaning goes down. Work life does the same kind of foolishness. And we go, look, you know, best way to blow up a bad idea is get away from that dichotomy. Um, and also release that if I'm not being paid for it, it doesn't count. 
we talk about the vocational lifestyle where I'm paid for my purposeful thing and the avocational lifestyle where I'm paid for one thing, nobly done, doesn't mean it's hateful, you know, and some of that other heart stuff or soul stuff is elsewhere, contextually, which has been what most human beings have done for the history of humankind. Um, and look, think about what you're making. I mean, what you're actually doing. So one of our reframes is, look, you know, we're all makers, and we talk about makers, this is a makerspace, right? Usually there's a big making sign, right, hanging from that beam. It's gone today. And we, but we make more than one kind of thing. You know, hey, what do you make, Jonathan? Well, you make ideas, and you, make, you, know, that, you, know, you don't just make some money, right? Um, there's a famous poet who talks about what do you make. And so we say there are three kinds of things all of us make. You know, we make economic outcomes, probably in the market economy, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, and so we make some money. Um, and then what we also make an impact in the world. So there's the, the purpose world, the social impact world, you know, talks about things in terms of making an impact. Um, and then on the creativity side, we all have ways of expressing ourselves or taking our creativity and expressing it in a variety of forms, and that's making a form of expression. So we came up with a thing called the maker mix. We all have some mix of you know, money or production making, impact making, and expression making, um, and how to think about that. So Bill, I mean, how do we think about that? Well, you know, again, you don't, you, you know, let's, let's assume you want, uh, when we look at hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Odyssey plans that people do in, in, from the first book, everybody has, I wish my job was a little more creative, or I wish I had this thing I used to do that I like to do that I don't do anymore. It's like, okay, well, you're just under- I need more Play-Doh in my you're, life. You're undervaluing the thing that, that matters. And so when you say, I've got this mix, Oh, I'm not doing enough expression. Okay, let's, let's, but, but you might not want to do your art on the market's terms. Right? There might be a really good reason not to do expression for money. To keep the money in the money category, the impact in the impact category. You know, money, I go to work, it's good, it's fine. Impact, you know, I coach that AYSO soccer team, and I teach those girls about teamwork and showing up for each other and practicing. Because that's what I think you know, kids need to learn. That's my impact. And, you know, and then I go to an open mic night and I do my poetry, whatever. So when you separate it out, the only time you get unhappy is when right. you're trying to get paid in the wrong dollars for the wrong thing. Like, I want dollars for expression. I want, I want impact for... You know, number one version of people who come to our midlife seminar and raise their hand when I say they're unhappy tends to be lawyers. And, and when recovering we, lawyers is a really yeah, big group. Yeah. As, as he leans and looks at me. Yeah, and when, you, you know, and when you get into it, it's like, well, I went into the law because I wanted to have impact. I wanted to help truth, and I wanted to fight for truth and justice. I wanted to be, you know, at the Supreme Court saying this was not right. And instead I'm writing contracts for Exxon, you know, to build oil wells. And it just doesn't, you know, like, I'm getting paid a lot of money, but I wanted to get paid an impact. And so whenever you have a, 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 whenever it's crossed like that, you, you experience an incoherent life, right? Right. I thought I was going to do this, but I got this instead. And then something, something breaks. So, you know, we talk a lot about the coherent life is when what you do and what you believe and who you are kind of comes together as a one single story. And that's what we're trying to help people get. So that, what's that story? Right. And there's a, there's a trick here, by the way, that people who haven't done this yet don't necessarily understand. It's really good news, which is sort of the magic unit opportunity. People tend to think, you know, I've, I don't spend any time at all. I mean, I'm spending so much more time at work than I do coaching Little or what have you, and they haven't been doing that yet. Um, it has nothing to do with time. It's amazing how small an amount of an alternate thing can incredibly change 
the experience. It's, it's like spice and food, you know, just add a little bit of cumin and it's all different. Um, so for instance, um, for me right now, um, and this would either be outside, be outside work and give an inside work example, really briefly. So outside work for me, um, so Bill actually, you know, didn't quite major in physics and didn't quite major in actually fine art because he was too <laughs> chicken because his dad, the engineer, was going to say, what are you doing that for? Right. Um, and so he majored in design, which is commercial art, you know, but now he's to get back to becoming a really fine artist. He's really developing his art. And my wife is now developing her art after years of being a high-tech salesperson. And she's getting really, so I'm surrounded by artists and it's pissing me off. And it's, um, <laughs> so kind of go, well, I want to be an artist too. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start learning how to make bad lawn art, you know, and, um, uh, but in the garage with a welding torch. And so I just signed up for, well, last night I went to my second welding class. So I spent two hours a week in welding class. You know, I spent 30 hours a week trying to sell this book. Um, and, um, but it's huge, because I've got this little welding thing going on. I've got a burn right here, I can show you. The, um, and it's, it's a big part of my life now. So just a little tiny thing outside of work has changed everything, because I'm walking around being a future bad lawn artist. You know. Then one of my clients, who is in a call center, actually, you know, a part of her life that wasn't happening much was the interpersonal thing. And it turns out everybody loved her as an interviewer for new employees. Um, because she was so good at getting to the heart of the story with people really quickly. And long story short, she ends up you know, having spare cups of coffee with people after they get hired. Like, I liked interviewing with you. Can I talk to you after I join the company? Sure you can. She now has become a self-anointed volunteer coach uh, to people with their career. So she comes in early and has coffee with people and does coaching. Doesn't call it that because it's not part of a job description. Then it got so popular that her boss said, you know, keep doing that. And I'll give you two hours off a week to go do that instead. So what she did is she took this meaning-making thing, which is invest in people's lives, and made it a, a side gig, a side hustle in the job, you know, on the, on, on the premises, and felt huge because I'm going to spend all day taking care of customers on the phone, which is fine. But I really want to invest directly in somebody I see regularly. So I do this little coaching thing on the side for about a half an hour a week. And it's huge. So a little bit goes a long way. So it, if it's not a time thing, because this is one of my curiosities. When you look at the make or mix, right? We've, yep. got, the, we've got the three ingredients, right? right? We've got money, we've got impact, right. we've got expression. Right. Right. If it's not a time issue, right. why wouldn't everybody want to optimize for all three? What's stopping that? Well, one of the advantages of making it a make or mix, like a mixer board, like, you know, if you're, if you're mixing sound for a song, you know, you could have all the bass, all the treble, and all, you know, you could have it at full volume all the time, but that doesn't, that's actually not it's a flat. very good song, right? Because you can't hear it, it's too muddy. There are times in your life when you might want to dial up expression or dial up impact. You know, when I, when I was running my consulting firm, I was making lots of money and, you know, a little bit of impact for the, for the clients, but they weren't my ideas, they were the client's ideas, so expression was zero. When David offered me this job at a healthy 50% less than I was making, I dialed down the money, up the impact, felt pretty good, right? So I think it's just, it's just it's matching, it's matching where you are in life and notice, you know, all of our things are, you are here, there's a big sign over the studio on the other side of campus. You are here. The students are here. You're here now. This is reality. What do you see? Right. What do you observe? And sometimes the tools just help you yeah. tease out some things. Now, so, so, and where do you want to go? And sometimes life allows you to go with a twofer or a threefer. Right. You, know, you can triple score something. So if, you know, if, we, if I design an immensely beautiful PowerPoint slide, right? Look, my slides are terrific. Um, the, um, and, and it's talking about something that's transformative to the people who are going to be watching it. And I'm getting really well paid to present it, so I'm making money with an impact with immensely creative expression all at the same time. That's a threefer. So you could actually max out your, your mixer board that way. But that's circumstantial. You don't have to demand of life that you can get threefers every day. 
Um, that's not a better situation. That's just a good day. And you know, it's like. like and by, and by, and by the way, um, everybody says, "Oh, I really want to be more creative." Walking into a studio every day, and there's a blank canvas on the on the on the easel, and it's just laughing at you. You're like you got nothing. You got nothing, dude. It's like you got no ideas that yeah. right. haven't been done before. Come on in here, and I'll eat you up. So this notion that we all want to have a creative life, trust me. It's harder than you think. Yeah, I mean, but I, I want to push back a little bit because. Sure. So, agree that you can have these moments or seasons or like things where everything is at eleven. Yeah. Right. So, and not that you should expect that to always happen. Right. But if, if it's if it is not a time constraint, right? Mm -hmm. What is the resource that is limited that does not allow us to be there more regularly? Because if I could make gobs of money, right. have a, a global impact, and feel fully expressed every day when I open my eyes and go right. out into the world, why would I not want to do it? That doesn't, I, I get the analogy with sure. a, an equalizer and it being flat, and it just sounds like noise. Yeah. But my, then my visualization mind is like, but I think that would be pretty awesome, actually. Okay. So what's, what, what's the bandwidth resource why is that not true? And what's the bandwidth resource that doesn't make that possible for more than a short amount of time? Okay, first, one thing, we try to design our tools so you can use them in ways that work for you, and you can push all the sliders up on your Maker Mix board. The, um, so that'd be fine, Jonathan. But I, th I think what we're trying to do is we, we're really anti-should. <laughs> we, we, we work really hard that we won't shit on you, and we don't recommend you should on yourself. Um, the, as much as possible. So the, I, um, I notice I'm, I'm having a react. I'm pushing back and going, I really don't want people to walk away thinking they should be able to or go for having all three sliders of money, impact, and expression maxed out. They should have a mix that works for them. Part of this has to do with the way you think about it. And so if you think about I'm getting as much expression as I want, and that's a 100, well, that, that's fine. You could have 100, 100, 100, however you want to score it. But I think the bandwidth issue has to do with compromise is okay. Doling out a limited resource of my energy or my attention, maybe it's not the same as my time, still says, you know, I mean, could I possibly be more expressive? Yes, I could. Am I asking that of myself at this point in my life? Not really. Not really. I'm not trying mm. to maximize. So I think, I think I want to give people permission to not have to maximize. More yeah. isn't better. And, no. and, and but theoretically, you could totally optimize. Right, and, and totally agree with the should side of things. Right. Um, and I, th I think we're saying the same thing, but just framing it differently. Sure. Reframing. What a wonderful tool. Right. Um, yeah. right. After you buy the book, you can reframe it any way you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, and it's funny because when, when I think about it through my, my brain says, this is a resource issue. Right. Um, right. Well, it is. It, and, it, yeah. and, but it gets back to something we had in the original book. It's, we can't make you more time, right. but it's what you pay attention to right. is, in fact, your reality. So it's what you put your energy into. Literally, like, I pay attention to this. My brain is consuming all of its electrical energy on paying attention to writing a book or being, uh, you know, a blogger or, or, or. And that's why something that's a high-energy activity that's only two hours a week can completely transform Dave's week. By the way, you should all learn to weld because as soon as you realize that you can melt metal... <laughs> and fuse it together in new shapes. You are like a god. <laughs> so learn to weld. I, I noticed it changes every student in, in our program. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. So it's about what do you pay attention to and where do you put your energy. And it's also about learning not to put energy in things that are just a waste of time. And remember, you know, make or mix does three things. But you could have them all max. But what about, um, what about taking care of your aging mom? Or what about your relationship? Or what about the kids? Yeah. You, know, that, you know, when we're working with our students and we have them do a five-year plan and a ten-year plan, right. some of them will put a dog on the plan maybe. Oh, maybe I could take care of a dog. I don't know, maybe. But they never put kids or families. Because right. they aren't in that stage yet. But as soon as you, know, like you, want, you, want to, you want to change your reality, have a child. And then you realize this work thing, not as important. Yeah. It's not as important as raising this child, right? So as we change, change ourselves and change the, the seasons we're in in our lives, different things become important. And that's appropriate. And it took us, you know, we have three kids. It took us, it took us a bunch of years to realize, oh, this is not, not going to be like, you know, me and Cynthia just hanging out together. This has something to do with these three kids who are running around. Then we changed our why, and then we, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now they're all gone, and now we're having to figure out, like, do we even know each other anymore? And how are we going to work that out? So as you progress through these seasons, it's nice to have some tools to observe, where am I at now? Because things are, things are different. Yeah, and, and getting back to Dave, what you said also um, earlier is that to me, I, 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 one of the big fears that, that I have about somebody actually trying to like, push all to 11 at all <laughs> right. times is them making choices about how to get there um, that say, like, I'm only going to say yes to this if it will allow me to right. push all three higher at the same right. time. Right. So in the context of expression, if you're a painter, right. you, know, like you will constantly be asking, what is the thing that I need to paint that will, will optimize for money simultaneously? And that you will may kill end up, you as an Right, artist. it will destroy that you will destroy as your somebody art. who's going to express yourself. So 
it's, I think it's a much more, it's this really interesting nuance and dynamic interplay between the three. Yeah, the, and there's one particular tool called the Maker Mix, and the image is literally, you know, a soundboard. What we, the, the primary takeaway is, um, it's your soundboard, it's your finger, your sliders, you can move them around. It's your song. You know, when you move one, the others don't jump automatically. I mean, you literally have control over this thing, and you could mix it differently, and what would that look like? It's about the agency thing. We're, you know, I mean, every single tool in the book is about a way of turning your agency into action that has an outcome. Yeah. The Maker Mix is a really interesting tool and process to work with. Another thing that we've kind of been dancing around without naming the tool is the impact is... Impact map, yeah. Impact map. Yep. Tell me a bit more about like where this comes from and the, sort of like the, just the base of it. Yeah, the impact map is primarily an insight tool. You know, it's not one of the ones like, oh, God, it changed my life. So it's like, oh, now I see. So that's kind of what we're looking for in the impact map. And the impact map came out of office hours. We found over and over again in office hours, people were groaning around a question they couldn't quite, oh, I'm not sure this is really, I think I'm in the wrong place. It doesn't feel quite right. There's, it sounds, it sounds, you hear that a lot. You know, it has kind of a groany sort of, you know, I got yeah. tuberculosis. Job's, job's okay, but I don't think I'm having yeah, something. You know, what and, am I not and, having? And when we distilled it down, what it was is it was impact. Am I making an impact in the world the way I meant to? And it feels like this isn't the place and so people had a sense of place where the impact that I'm supposed to be making is occurring. Uh, and we said, well, and what impact are you supposed to be having if you're in the wrong impact place? Uh, I don't know. You know. So we really know that we want to have an impact, and we really don't know exactly what we mean by that. And so what we did is we unpacked that a little bit and said, well, you know, let's look at two aspects of impact, where and what. So the impact map on the horizontal axis looks at what kind of, and these are very qualitative, um, impact you're having, you're having a remediation impact. You know, I'm getting rid of bad things or fixing broken things. I'm having a generative impact. I'm doing new things. I'm working on autonomous cars, stuff we never had. I'm bringing the new thing to the party. Or I'm having a support impact. I'm running the world. I'm, you, know, I'm, you know, Friday is trash day in my town, and the trash got picked up. And it's really important that they keep picking up the trash every week. That keeps the world running in a, in a not particularly you know, biologically scary way. And so I can either be you know, a, a, a new generation kind of person. I can be a support and operations person. I can be a fix or remediate kind of person. And those are qualitatively really different. That's and, my, and equally wonderful. And equally wonderful. And they have good examples of all kinds. And then where is my point of impact? Is my point of impact particularly relative to people with one, we're having a, a, a three-way conversation, so it's a very small group. Right now, my point of impact right now, if, if these people weren't watching and you weren't recording, it's just the three of us, that's a small group. Or is it one-to-one? -one? Is it 10 people? Is it my department? You know, is it 1,600 undergrads at Stanford? Is it everybody in North America? Is it, I'm the malaria project manager at the Gates Foundation, everybody on planet Earth who might be infected by malaria? So my point of impact or my point of engagement, my nature of impact, locates me, and, and that has a different feel and experience. So the impact map teaches people to locate where they are impact-wise, which is role-based. So it's not like, here's Bill, here's Bill the teacher, here's Bill the, the artist, here's Bill the author. Those are different roles in the world. And they tell you some things, and you start figuring out, where is it I want to be? Is this the right place for me now? Do I want to be someplace else? So the impact map is a way to start thinking about where I want to make my impact. No, here's one example. I'm the Gates Malaria Program Manager. I'm up at the global level. I'm trying to solve problems. I never hand out a net to anybody in Africa. I don't, never meet anyone with malaria. Yeah. But I believe that you know, impact happens because I create this opportunity and the rest of the world executes. 
And I'm okay with reading policy papers. But that won't work if I really need to be on the ground in Africa and handing out nets. If I'm the kind of person that needs to see the people I'm helping, my impact will have to be here. It's not better or worse, it's just different. I'm a brain surgeon. One brain at a time, remediation. Is that's the, that, by the way, that in the quadrant, that's the lower, that's the left quadrant, the which everybody left. thinks is the bad one? No, if, if it's your brain <laughs> and he fixes it, or she fixes it, you're really happy. Yeah. So, and, and, and sometimes the brain surgeon then becomes head of surgery, and then he's like, I don't like this job anymore. Right. Because I'm not doing the thing that I want to do. I'm doing budgets, not I'm, brains. I'm not yeah. Doing, yeah, I'm doing budgets, not brains. So, so a lot of times when people map the, the jobs they've had and jobs they are thinking about having from their Odyssey plan, they go, oh, I see the pattern. When I get up too high and I lose connection with the people I'm helping, it doesn't work for me. Or when I get stuck in the day-to-day the -day stuff and I'm not working at the systems level, it doesn't work for me. And then they have a, that, and it's, it is actually sometimes a really big aha, like, oh, that's why this job's, right. there's nothing wrong with the job, it's just the wrong location hmm. and the wrong you know, constituency. And then they redesign and then they're super happy. And yeah. there's no good or bad place, right. and there's no one place for you. You could be all over the map at different points in your life or different times, it just experiences differently. The first woman who helped me invent this thing, you know, had been a Starbucks barista, an E911 dispatcher at a fire department, and then ended up becoming, you know, a wellness policy developer, which is her life goal. And she liked being a barista better because she got to see you face to face. So we ended up finding a way to make sure there's, but I don't want to do that for a living. I think I want to go do this policy thing to make wellness part of the public health world. You know, that's the change in the world I want to make. But I've got to make sure I get some face to face time. So if I just do the job the way they asked me to do it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dry up and die. Yeah, so. and, and this circles all the way back to, Dave, what you brought up earlier about sort of like for generations, work being constructed in this very hierarchical yep. linear way where it's like you start as like one level as the doer, yep. you know, and then the place that you should naturally aspire, should naturally yes. aspire to should. is going to be the manager and right. then higher and higher and higher, which pulls you further and further away from that essence. Yeah. You know, but if the thing that fills you more than anything else is being on that fundamental level, right. you you know, you have more power, more control, more money, and you're more miserable with every step that you go up the right. ladder and trying right. to figure out why. Right. Which, I, I mean, it also brings up something with, from your first book, which I think is a really important distinction to be able to make, and it's this idea of gravity <laughs> problems. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, which, which is zooming the lens out, really understanding. Like, what, what is the fundamental nature of the problem that you're trying to solve, and is it, in fact, solvable? And if it is, what should I do? And if it's not? What should I do and not do? Yeah, so there are two classes of problems that people get stuck on all the time. And unless they reframe the way they think about the problem, they will stay stuck forever. And a gravity problem is a problem. Uh, you can't change gravity. It comes from me, the cyclist. And you know, I didn't get the freshman 15 pounds when I was a freshman, but I did get the turn 60, 20 pounds. I got the turn 60, 20 pounds, um, which has slowed my bike down. I'm fine, but my bike got a bunch slower after I gained 20 pounds. Um, <laughs> And so I went to Bill and said, Bill, i got this real problem. Gravity, the hills are, are so much worse than they used to be. Right. I, I, the gravity's not working. Could you fix it for me? Right. And Bill said, no. Yeah, I can't fix gravity. It's not a problem. It's a reality. So a lot of people's problem isn't a immovable thing. And so once you accept that gravity problem as just not a problem, it's a circumstance. If it's not actionable, it's not a problem. It's a circumstance. All you can do with it is accept it. And now I could you know, lose weight you know, by a powered bike, get more gears. There are a lot Right on the flats. You know, there are lots of things you can do uh, that aren't fixed gravity. And then anchor problems are a different version, which is where you embed, and we see this particularly in the workplace, you embed the answer in your question 
So the classic one is, how do I get to a promotion? You know, there's a big company I've worked with where everybody's stuck between level seven and eight. We are massively oversupplied in sevens. We don't need any more eights. And so the attrition waiting line to get to a, the next eight promotion opportunity is really long, a lot of grumpy people. You know, so how do I, how do I become an eight? That, why is that an anchor problem? The problem has the solution built in it. If I can't be an eight, I don't want to solve this problem. I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy. And so once you reframe, you go, well, wait a minute, is, is, it, is it just the eight that I want, which is kind of weird and silly, or is it that I want more influence, or I want to do more kind of policy setting around here, or, more or, money. or I want to have more, some more money, or I want to work on a different team. Um, you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sideways and redesign and remodel. Or prove my boss is wrong. Yeah, prove my boss is wrong. So, so the, you know, or it's the, um, you know, I want to go sailing every weekend, but I can't afford a sailboat. How do I buy a sailboat? Right. You know, or, I, or the one yours was like, I want to have a wood shop just like my dad did, but my garage is too small. How do I get a bigger garage? Like welding. That's not the problem, right? The problem is you've, you've created the solution you want that you can't have inside the problem. It's perfect because then you can stay stuck forever. I mean, I bet you guys know people, not you because you're here, you're really well balanced, but you know people who've been stuck on the same problem for a long time. You go to coffee and they're just complaining about their boss or their HOA or their something, you know, something is not right and it's just not fair. And usually the thing they can't have that's built into the, how do I have the thing I can't have? That's the question. Right. Um, uh, and there's a person usually attached to the can'tness of its having, right. you know, and so. Which is never you also. Never you. Your boss, your HOA association yeah. president. I mean, one in four American yeah. workers would forego their next raise if you would fire their boss for them. I will pay you to get, that's not a great statistic. And the sad thing is I'm willing to bet, I have an intuition, but I'm highly confident um, that, um, as I tell my clients, I'm highly opinionated, but the good news is I'm right. So the, um, <laughs> is that I bet, you know, at least 50, if not 80% of those bosses people would pay you to fire are doing their darndest to be a good boss and trying to find a way to make you happy. Um, and, and, and are either stuck with you or stuck with and themselves. And they answered the same survey about their boss. <laughs> right. And he answered the same survey about... Her boss. Almost nobody thinks right. it's me. I'm not yeah, it's always yeah. somebody else. So uh, what's our favorite review of the book? The, first, the very first book that came out? Oh, Amazon? yeah, the very first one. It was a guy said, clearly the authors respect the autonomy of the reader because they're not telling us what to do. They're telling us how to figure out what to do. We're in the how business, not the what business. Yeah. You're the pro. We're not. And a lot of it comes down to, I mean, I keep circling back to the, the word that keeps spinning in my head is discernment. Yep. And clarity. It's like getting past delusion, getting past illusion. Yeah, illusions. You know, it, how can I see whatever the circumstance is yeah. most clearly? Because right now, I can't make a decision right. until I actually understand more clearly what it is that I think I'm deciding about. What is the, what is the truest nature of my circumstance mm -hmm. right now? Right. How do I get there? How do I strip away this thing, you know, what's stopping me from being there? And then once you're there, and it seems like a lot of the tools and the process that you guys have developed is about that. When you get to that place where you can actually start to see, maybe for the first time, the truth or little, Just what's going on. little yeah, teachers, actually like maybe what's, close, going, on, what's yeah. going on, I feel like so many of the decisions actually become fairly apparent. <laughs> you know, I'm the, I'm the atheist on the, on the stage here, but um, it is kind of... Interesting to notice that 3,000 years of wisdom tradition, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept what I cannot change, right. or all suffering is related to clinging to the reality that is an illusion. 
I mean, we're chess, and we're based by based back in neuroscience and and research. But people have been kind of asking these questions for a very long time, and you know, very modestly, we're offering a few new ideas about how you approach it. But it it is about seeing what's actually there, not what you're clinging to or hoping is there, and then just dealing with it in a way that makes you um, the agent in your life. Matt. Design thinking is very pro-reality. Right. I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a lot of the process is about stripping away, and then you're ready to rebuild. Yeah. Um, Even though we're stripping away, it almost sounds like I'm doing something wrong. I mean, it's a, it's a dead neutral position. Like, it's just what's going on. The, the, the big you are here sign over by the grad loft is all about, I mean, the cool stuff happens in reality. That's right. Design doesn't work anywhere but the real world. Yeah, it's like you just, you're perpetually prototyping your way through, is it true? Yeah. You know, yeah, and and yeah. you just keep going. with curiosity, like right. is is this, and not even like is this true, but more like wow, this just is open. so interesting. Right, not having. I like, wonder what's going yeah. on in the world with these I mean, interesting there, people. We don't want to do the details. There's a whole chapter on being overwhelmed. There's a whole chapter on organizational politics. What the heck is a politics chapter doing in a design book? It's the empathy stuff. I mean, the the point of having a politics chapter is so you can look at what's going on. And go oh. Now I understand, and now that I understand what's actually going on, I've framed a way to be empathetic with the situation. Now I have the agency to actually act within it. Because yeah. politics isn't inherently evil. It's just when people get to... It's just true. I've coached a startup with three founders that has more politics in it than Apple ever did, right? So it's just the way people are. And once you understand how the, the people exchange power, influence, and authority, you go, oh, Oh, this is completely understandable, and now I can design my way into it, and I can play the game or not play the game. But I'm not sitting here wondering why is weird stuff happening, and I don't get it. Right? But it must be politics. So, I want to be um, respectful of time here, also, because I want to give uh, everybody a chance to uh, ask some questions. I've been writing down questions. Like she's writing down questions. Good. Okay, she's um, writing down questions. Before we do that, though, because we are recording this for the podcast, <laughs> yes. also, and I always end every podcast the same way. I'm going to ask you my closing question, and then we will. Uh, roll it out into okay. our, our awesome crew people here. So at the end, I, the, the question I always offer up, and Dave, you've already answered this once before. I'm curious over the last four years, the answer may have evolved a little bit, but is if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I had an insight in the last, you haven't heard this yet. What is this really all about? I was thinking about the phrase Bill mentioned earlier, where um, George Valiant, the last project manager of the grant report, you know, summarized this whole thing like, you know, if you really want to understand what life is about, it's love, full stop. You know, and we don't explicitly talk about love a lot in the book, but I think what it's really about for me is I'm trying to give people legs on their love. The short version of designing your life is, in 10 words, get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. It starts with get curious. Curiosity is huge. You mentioned that many times in this interview already for designers, and what's curious about? Curious is an a priori affection for the world that says that might be interesting, and maybe that which animates me could connect to what's animating it, and these animations can get together synergistically, and we can be more alive. We talk about this, this, your spark type. It's about aliveness. And I actually think curiosity is a particularly active form of love expressing itself. So at the end of the day, what I'm really trying to do here is give your love legs. Mm. Yeah. I think Picasso said, uh, I've spent 40 years learning how to draw like a child again. Because when we're children, we are just full of curiosity. And we haven't had teachers who told us we 
we can't sing, we can't dance, we can't write or whatever. So we still believe we're, you know, that we're creative people. So I think, uh, again, being the existential atheist on the stage, Camus' question, there's only one question in philosophy, why not suicide? So a good life is getting up every day and having a reason to keep going. A good life is having that curiosity and, and love of the world right. that, that keeps you going. Well, maybe one more day. Let's, let's, just, let's, do, let's try this again and see how it comes out, you know, because there's... For me, no organizing principle other than my desire to see what's happening. And so for me, it's like curiosity. And then the, op the opposite of curiosity for me, by the way, is boring. When I have left that job, it was because I was bored and because there was nothing left in that organization that would make it interesting, at least for me. So I think you know, a curious life without boredom and getting up every day and, and saying, I got a really good reason, you know, for whatever's going to happen, like coming here today to do this, this interview with you. Thank you. So let's um, open it up to the audience. We have a mic that we're going to send around. Thank you, uh, Bill and Dave. This is fabulous. I had the privilege of attending one of your studios, uh, Ellen Kelly, University of San yeah. Francisco. Okay. Hi. Hi. And um, Dave, can you repeat your 10 words? I got get curious, try stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. This, uh, the etymology on that was we were about to go on to a seven-minute interview at four in the morning with three dogs and a cat watching on the early morning news show in Toronto, Canada, four years ago. And the assistant producer grabs me behind the camera and he goes, hey, we're running behind. We need the book and a sentence. Um, and I said, dude, you, got a two segment. you know, we're, we're Stanford instructors. We're not renowned. I, in particular, am not renowned for, you know, short answers. Um, and, uh, and he said, well, then you're off the air. And I said, give me a minute. Um, as a marketing guy, I can do a tagline. And so then, boom, it came out. Four sentences, but they're ten words. Get curious. Talk to people. Try stuff. Tell your story. That's it. Tell your story is putting yourself in the world with the intention of, from your curiosity, and which leads to another, you know, curiosity, and you meet new people, and, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a virtuous cycle. We call that the generative virtuous cycle, and repeat until engaged. When you're engaged, stop. Keep doing that for a while. That's called career planning. Other questions? Yeah, right here. Here we go. Hey. I was just wondering, in your research, when you looked at career design, what were some of the generational differences that you found in how people should approach designing their careers for different places in your career, different ages, coming from different backgrounds? I'm not sure if, I, I'm not sure if we came across that so much as different uh, generations have different expectations. You know, this, I'm, I'm noticing now that because the, the Gen Zs are kind of the students I have now, and they're very different than the millennials in one way. They're both all, you know, want to do good things, want to have purpose in the world, want to change the world. Uh, but remember, if you were eight, 20, if you're 18 or 19 or 20, you were 10, 11 or 12 in 2008 when we had the Great Depression. And so I actually think Gen Zs are depression babies. They really want to change the world, but they really want to make sure that they've got a job and that they don't run into that thing that happened to mom and dad, you know, when everybody, when the, economy, the, bubble, you know, the economy fell off the rails. So... I noticed the Gen Zs are more practical, the, Gen, the millennials were more idealistic, but still, I think, wonderfully you know, action-oriented. The generation before that was um, not my favorite because they just wanted to all get jobs in, on Wall Street. Um, it was a very, the me generation was very materialistic, which is fine because now they're all 40 and they're coming to seminars going, please help me, my life is empty. <laughs> um, uh, so I think it was more around expectations but if you expect your job to be more meaningful, then we have to find a way to design into something that is meaningful. And even in that entry-level job, where you're just doing spreadsheets for the boss, 
we've got to figure out why. why. Why am I doing this? What am I learning? How is this changing? How is this helping the organization get somewhere? But it's interesting, we were talking to the chief learning officer at Deloitte, and they are, you know, they're a pyramid of you know, partners and junior partners, and senior associates, junior associates, all those levels. And uh, they recruit three or 4,000 students every year. And what's happening is they get to about level two or three, and then they look at the partner's life, and they say, that seems miserable, and they're all leaving. So they have partners, and they have people at the bottom, but they have no one in the middle because they haven't articulated why. Why would I want that job? I mean, it's interesting. When I, you, met, you brought up the fact, in a very past life, I was a lawyer. And one of the reasons that I actually ended up leaving the law. <laughs> it's not a past life. It's a very past very life. Very past life. Okay. <laughs> Multiple life. Was that um, I actually, I, I, was, I was fairly early. I started out kind of wearing the white hat, working for a big federal agency, and like investigating and doing cool stuff. And mm -hmm. then went to a giant firm. And it used to be, you know, like two generations before me, my grandfather, like there was a certain set of expectations. And this is what life looked like when you, quote, right. made it. Right. right. You know, but I was looking at the lives of the people who had, quote, made it in this big firm I was working for. They were noble people who were working hard. Many of them really enjoying what they were doing. But it wasn't the life that I wanted to live. Right. And it became very clear. And, and you know, and, and I, even if I actually wanted to get there, I, I, you know, there was a path. But it also, I just, I didn't want that. Yeah. So why would I give up Go so much that, yeah. to be there? Right. Question. Yeah, Bill and Dave, thank you so much. I enjoyed your talk, and I've enjoyed your first book, and I've attended one of your workshops. Um, I really appreciate the, the mindset around curiosity and being curious about the world around you. In your new book, do you focus on curiosity about self, like self-awareness? And I'm thinking in particular about stage four when you talk about reinventing yourself for right. your career. Um, and that, I think, takes a lot of um, personal insight, right, for a person to, to move forward. So just curious about the new book and whether you address self-awareness. Yeah, with the, um, interestingly, there was a, a long article on the first book done in Mindfulness Magazine. And the managing editor of Mindfulness Magazine actually came and sat in actually on the Creative Live video training course. He actually was one of the people on the camera. Um, and then came and interviewed us. And the first thing he says, well, clearly, I mean, it's obvious. The book was centered in mindfulness. That's really where you guys are coming from. It's all about that. And we kind of go, if you want to believe that, sure, that's great. Um, <laughs> you know, whatever works for you. And, 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 and so, um, and we're supportive of that, you know, and, you know, Bell's practices and I practices. But in terms of self-discovery, we don't go way far down that road. We don't claim a huge competency there. Um, you know, I spend a couple of two weeks a year at a retreat with a bunch of monks up against the hill, that kind of stuff. You know, we don't talk, have those conversations per se, so I, would, I don't want to overpromise that we're the next mindfulness 2.0 center of the universe. But on the self-discovery thing, what we do say is, this is where the talk to people. You know, your curiosity gets you, and there's something going on there. If you go into the talk to people and try stuff thing, what you're gonna do is, the fires that want to burn more brightly will grab that oxygen and flare up. The ones that aren't that interesting won't. And so the self-discovery part turns to the learning, and the reason tell the story is now formally added to the four steps, is in order to have something to say, you have to reflect on the experiences. You, my curiosity took me to this conversation, this conversation took me to these experiences. What did I notice? What did I learn about the world, about me, about what's going on? So then I'm standing in line to get my sandwich at Subway, and I'm gonna tell my story. My story isn't, hey, I stayed up all night binge watching Game of Thrones again last night, how about you? You know, that's not that interesting, as opposed to, gosh, you know, what I noticed this week, so this, just yesterday I told, but what I noticed was, you know our be, do, become generative cycle? I'm not really doing that very well, I noticed that, and here's what I'm thinking about doing to play with that. That's telling my story in a generative way, 
that requires self-knowledge. So we move people that direction, but we don't try to overpromise. Well, you, and you know from the workshop that you know there's the design thinking thing, but that wasn't enough to prove life design. So we have a discovery and support layer, and in that layer is practices. So and discernment, think, yeah, and discernment. I think when most people think about self-discovery, they do think about you know going away, maybe journaling or being quiet or doing some kind of a process where they discover about themselves something that's true. Get rid of the all the ego stuff and everything else. But it's also, for us, self-discovery is a embodied practice. It's this going and right. talking to people and seeing which fire gets the most oxygen. Mm -hmm. Because we're not just thinking about ourselves, just sitting quietly and thinking about ourselves can help organize some things, but the, the felt experience of the world and how, how my empathy for the world starts with my empathy for myself. That may be the practice of you know, mindfulness or something. Now, what is the world? Just because I want to do something doesn't mean the world wants it or needs it. So I need empathy for the world, too. And our, our discovery process is in the world. It's radical collaboration with the world. Mm -hmm. So um, that's not to say that you know, sitting quietly and trying to understand, because we live noisy lives and we live in busy times. And we do have a thing called the Seventh-day Reflection, borrowing in part from the wisdom tradition of Sabbath, and teach people how to do a reflection. The two outcomes being savoring and insight. So we go into that in some detail, yeah. you know, but I don't know that we're going to be on the mindfulness shelf. Other I questions? A few more questions? Yeah. Hi, so in everything you're talking about and reframe, and I'm thinking practical applications, and I'm just thinking with the relationship you guys have, what are some of the challenges you ran into writing a book together? And how did you work around those? Well, as Dave mentioned, you know, we were over in this room, and we sort of just, the way we write together is we outline the whole thing. Um, we make a proposal, and hopefully the, the, you know, the publisher said yes, and they said yes in this case. And then um, we don't get a chance to work together as much as we used to, so we basically, like, I'm going to write chapters 1, 3, 7, 5, and he's going to write you know, 2, 4, 6, 8, or whatever it is. And then we, we sort of swap back and forth and, and show each other what we're doing. And then our um, professional writer, Laura, makes it sound like we yeah, know what we Yeah, and we have a lovely, yeah, a lovely writer who kind of glues it all together for us to make sure the grammar works. Uh, I don't think there's, a, there's not a lot of controversy in that process. I miss, like, when we get together and we can brainstorm, it's kind of a magical kind of like, we can fill a whiteboard and really yeah. And it's really fun. But the writing part, I mean, writing is a sort of solitary activity. You go off to a you know, dark room and you, and you write the whole thing. Um, the book is 55,000 words. Or maybe a little more. This one's, I think, 65,000. And I wrote 50 and threw away 30. Yeah. <laughs> No, we, we, we happily haven't had much conflict. And we're really good at resolving it when we do. The, um, so that's, uh, that's, if you have that tool, you're kind of good to go. Um, things happen along the way. You know, Bill's in a reframe right now. Uh, the university's asked him to stay longer. Why don't you just keep working full-time a little longer, Bill? Um, so he's in the process of reframing why he doesn't want to change his life. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and that gets in the way of some things. So, so we, our individual lives... You know, I've got eight grandkids, and that causes all kinds of trouble. Um, so th things come up, and we, we have to adapt to that kind of stuff. But we mostly adapt to outside changes, not so much to inside changes. One more, maybe? One more yeah. Thanks so much for the talk. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm curious as to whether you have any advice for procrastination. I notice a desire to be curious and talk to people, and then mm -hmm. I'll go ahead and watch the season of Game of Thrones and just be like, I'll get to it later. And so wondering yeah. if you have any thoughts on that. I love procrastination. I'm really good at it. <laughs> um, there's a question that 
isn't in the book that often comes up for me. It's like, well, that's great. How does that serve you? How does it serve you to not do the things you say you want to do and to spend time doing things that you really, you know, at the end of the day, don't think are valuable? Mm -hmm. So it, again, it's about where, do you, where are you putting your attention right now? And, and, and there's a reason you're not doing the thing you want to do. And most of the time, it's, it's some kind of fear or it's scary or it's too, too hard to do. And so, you know, our, you know, our method and the method of all behavior change scientists who study this stuff is set the bar really low, get off the couch, you know, stop. Turn, you can turn off the Netflix automatically starts the next thing feature. Turn it off because it's not healthy for you. It's healthy for Netflix, but it's not healthy for you. Get some accountability. Get some accountability. Tell a friend you're going to do this thing. Set a really clear objective that's simple that you can actually get done in a day or something and build your way for it. Build, build your confidence that you can do the things you want to do. And, you know, as soon as you get started and something starts happening, like, hey, I had this really interesting conversation or this person called, called me and said, let's do a, let's do a uh, podcast together. That energy will pull you out of your, out of your procrastination. It's very hard to change by yourself. One of the assignments we give students is to go talk to people. You have to go talk to a stranger. You know, and people love to find reasons not to do that. And so what we found was um, we, we put an accountability system in, and an incredibly light one, which is get a buddy, and we want you to have made one call to a stranger by a week from today, and your accountability is, and let's say class is on Thursday, by Tuesday, before next Thursday, you two call each other or have a cup of coffee, and here's your accountability question. How's it going? That really penetrating question, how's it going? Because you know what I mean is, did you make the call yet? And, if that, and that's it. Not like, well, did it work? And have you done it right? And show me their skins, you know? Nothing anywhere near that provocative. And what people find is we have about a 50% increase in follow through. Simply knowing that I'm going to get asked the question and I really do, and I don't, I don't want to show up and have nothing to say. So just give yourself a chance at winning. If you're the only person holding you accountable to your discipline, your chance of success is really low unless you're an amazingly disciplined person. But you're not because you procrastinate. <laughs> I'll just throw in also, I, I think a really fascinating frame that I found super helpful is um, Gretchen Rubin came up with her four tendencies, which is about how we meet our own expectations. Gretchen's an old friend of mine, and she read Gary Taub's book, Why We're Fat, and basically she closed the last page and she hasn't eaten carbs since. And, and people are like, what? Yeah. How, like, you're a freak. How's it? And, and she's like, why would I? Like, what? It's what you do, because... She's a particular type where she just like, if it makes sense to her, done. Yeah. No external accountability, just done, right? And I found her, you can just Google it, um, check out the four tendencies because it, it's really helpful in understanding what internal and external structures are appropriate for you to create in order to meet your own expectations. I'm a questioner. So am I. And the reason I'm 100% sure about that is because I took her assessment once. I got questioner. I called Gretchen. I said, we need to have coffee. <laughs> I sat down with Gretchen and, and said, I yes, told her yes, my dilemma. Yeah. And I said, I don't know if I am. And she's like, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you so much for coming today, Bill. Dave, yeah, thanks thank for coming so out. Much for the conversation. Yeah. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.